Dear listeners, welcome to the newest conversation of the Review of Democracy podcast. My name is Belus Kubekas. Today, our guest is Sarah Shortal. She is an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame. She is an intellectual and cultural historian of modern Europe who specializes in modern France, Catholic thought, and the relationship between religion and politics. Her newest book, about which uh, we will talk today, is entitled Soldiers of God in a Secular World, the Politics of Catholic Theology in 20th Century France. So, hello, Professor Shortnow. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I like for the start to tell you uh, that you would tell us about the origins of this new theology or the novel theology. Uh, your book starts with a story about this particular institutional setting in which uh, this no- novel theology was born in France. So during this anti-clerical campaign of the Third Republic, uh, during which religious orders were forced to move their seminaries abroad and this kind of created these unique conditions for study, allowing these young priests, the future Dominicans and Jesuits to rethink Catholic theology. So could you tell us what was this uh, new theology actually and what were its theological innovations? How uh, would you define their relationship with the neo-scholastic thought which was dominant at the time? And what were actually the differences between the Jesuit and Dominican versions of the new novel theology uh, how did they differ from one another, if you could tell, like, main key things? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, first, I think it's important to understand something about uh, the circumstances uh, that allowed for uh, their emergence and that dominated their formation, really, uh, which, as you alluded to, was uh, a situation of exile created by the anti-clerical legislation in France at the end of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, which evicted most religious orders from France. And so most of these figures uh, completed their religious formation in exile as a result. So the Jesuits, I focus especially on their time um, on the Channel Island of Jersey and uh, the Dominicans, their time at Le Solchoir, which was in Belgium. And so here I'm talking specifically on the Jesuit side about people like Henri de Lubac, probably most famously, um, Gaston Fessard, Yves de Moncheuil, and on the Dominican side, people like Marie-Dominique Chenu and Yves Congar. And you know, the irony that I, that I point out is that I think the anti-clerical legislation and, and the situation of exile actually created a uniquely um, <clears throat> sort of fecund environment, I suppose, for intellectual life and that isolation actually uh, created kind of a hothouse environment in these schools and so paradoxically, the anti-clerical laws actually created the conditions, I think, for this renaissance in Catholic theology. And what they're reacting against was the kind of philosophy they were taught at these institutions, which was, as you pointed out, uh, neo-scholasticism. And that was the dominant uh, philosophy of the church since since 1879 or so when uh, the church led a revival of the thought of Thomas Aquinas. And the tendency of this theology was especially to read Aquinas through the 16th century commentators. 
which led to a kind of hyper-rationalist system and one that really emphasized the distinction between the natural and supernatural orders. And that's really what, what these figures are reacting against. And instead they wanna go back to the sources of the Catholic tradition and especially to the church fathers or to Aquinas himself, you know, quite apart from his, his later commentators. And they tend to emphasize the role of history in theology. Uh, they tend to have a very kind of social approach to Catholicism and emphasize the mystical and less hierarchical elements of the church and especially the unity of the natural and supernatural orders. But as you point out, there is an important distinction, I think, between the Dominicans and the Jesuits that emerges, especially after World War II, but I think you see roots of it beforehand. Um, And that has to do with the fact that the Dominicans were always more Thomist than the Jesuits, who were more drawn, I think, to the church fathers. And this leads the Dominicans, I think, to take a more positive view towards the modern world and to the possibility of working within secular institutions. And you see this especially after the war when they get really involved with uh, kind of movements of the Catholic left, like the worker priests. Um, So I frame this as a difference between incarnation and eschatology, with the Dominicans concerned with incarnating Catholic values in secular milieu, and uh, the Jesuits instead emphasizing kind of eschatological distance from, from the secular. And this split really plays out, I think, at Vatican II and then in post conciliar debates as well. So you show that there was this very close relationship between theology and politics. And during the 20s and 30s, there were these competing theologies that conceptualized politics in different ways. Many neo-scholastic thinkers embraced the royalist Action Francaise, while the new theology theologians challenged this uh, neo-scholastic understanding by developing um, quite different version of politics. So why were these new theologians dissatisfied with this uh, existing uh, theological conceptualizations of politics and how did they propose to reconceptualize the relationship between politics and religion? Yeah, so I, here it's important to, to note that, uh, as you point out, at, during the first quarter of the 20th century, the Action Française, which was this far-right nationalist royalist movement led by Charles Maurras, really dominated clerical politics and, and Catholic politics in France. Um, and this created something of a problem, actually, for its Catholic adherents, because Maurras himself was not a believer. And so I argue that this, this put them in a sort of unusual position where they had to develop a justification for why Catholics could support this movement despite um, its leaders' uh, unbelief. And um, they have to do this even more after 1926 when the Vatican condemns the Action Française. And so they do this by arguing that you can separate Mohas's politics and the politics of the Action Française from the philosophy that informs it. And they do this by leaning, I think, on the neo-scholastic distinction between the natural and the supernatural. And interestingly, this is an approach later taken up by by other Catholics who are arguing that uh, Catholics can also support other kinds of atheist uh, ideologies like communism. Um, But for people like Delibac or uh, Maurice Blondel, his, his, um, in many ways, his maître penseur, 
um, they totally reject this idea that you can separate these two things, uh, theory and practice. And they argue that Mohas's atheism really penetrates every aspect of his thinking. And so the, the problem that they're facing is that they don't want to return to this kind of medieval alliance of throne and altar, which would reverse the, the separation of church and state in France, uh, which happened in 1905. Um, but they also reject this kind of secular liberal notion that religion and the church should confine itself to the private sphere. So they don't, they, they think the church can't just endorse secular political movements like the Action Française, but it also can't just retreat from public life because it's a social teaching. Um, so they're trying to find a way for the church to be in the secular public sphere, but not of it. And so I argue that the way that they do this is uh, by developing what I call a counter politics. And by that, I mean that they, they turn to theology to articulate an alternative to the existing political options of the day, whether it's liberalism, communism, or fascism. And so theology gives them a way of intervening in political questions while rejecting the terms of secular politics. So for example, they look to uh, the vision of the church as the mystical body of Christ, as a kind of alternative to uh, secular political models that privilege either the individual or the collective. They think only the mystical body can kind of balance those two things. Uh, one of the distincting features of your book, I think, was that you devote like really a lot of attention to uh, these theologians and their political choices during the Second World War. And at, at the moment, many Catholics were as well as ecclesiastical authorities actually were embracing this uh, national revolution led by Patan and the Vichy government. However, uh, these theologians that you are analyzing, they chose to the side of the resistance. And as you tell it, there was this rather straight line from their interwar theological commitments to their political choices during the Second World War. Well, at the same time, you point out, I think that the situation was more complicated and perhaps more problematic as many people from the Catholic action who not long time ago actually uh, followed their ecclesiology uh, of these new theologians, they did embrace the national revolution. And even more, uh, you point out the case of German theologian Karl Adam, who actually also developed this kind of mystical body theology in the 30s. However, he aligned his theological commitments with the racial politics of the Third Reich. So how did these new theologians actually ad adopt their interwar theological and political commitments to the situation of the Second World War? And why did these people like Delubac and other new theologians chose to oppose the National Revolution? And uh, why there was such a divergence in political choices of people who embraced this mystical body theology? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. So, so let me explain, first of all, what uh, the mystical body ecclesiology is. So this develops really uh, in the interwar period, but it's a return to St. Paul. And um, it really stresses the mystical organic character of the church over its visible juridical uh, nature. So the mystical body is something larger than the visible institutional church. 
It's an eschatological entity that includes all past, present, and future members of the church, and it will only fully emerge at the end of time. So in the interwar period, uh, this vision becomes closely associated with the specialized Catholic action movements like the Jeunesse Ouvrière Chrétienne, the Young Christian Workers, and that are meant to empower uh, the role of the laity within the church. And for de Lubac and, and others like him, like Gaston Fessard, um, the mystical body is a, a universal term that can potentially encompass everyone um, because you know, everyone is called to be a member of Christ. And so they see it as by definition, a rejection of racist or nationalist projects. You know, Dudubach says that the unity of the mystical body presupposes the prior natural unity of the human race. And so these are the kinds of ideas that lead them to enter the ranks of the resistance during the war and um, to create this, this journal, Témoignage Chrétien, which is really the main kind of voice of the spiritual resistance. Um, so it's those kinds of commitments, I argue, and not a commitment to, you know, patriotism or liberal democracy that leads them um, to into the ranks of the resistance because they see Nazism as an affront to Christianity. But the problem they face is that other people, um, as you mentioned, people like Adam, do not uh, see it this way. And uh, some of them have a very different reading of the mystical body ecclesiology, and they especially mix the kind of organic corporeal metaphors of that theology and the notion of differentiated body parts uh, with a kind of folkish uh, ideology. And de Lubach even thinks that, that actually the Third Reich itself kind of modeled itself on, on the mystical body. And so secular ideologies can also appropriate this concept uh, for their own ends. And so what he tries to do in a book called Corpus Mysticum, which he starts before the war, but kind of uh, completes towards the end of the war, is to reformulate this ecclesiology. And instead of, of uh, calling it the mystical body of Christ, he just says, no, the church is the body of Christ. He tries to go back to the church fathers here, and he stresses the relationship between the church and the Eucharist. Um, and the way that the Eucharist, the celebration of the sacrament, creates the church by binding um, Christians together and to Christ. And he sees this emphasis on the Eucharist as something that can guard against the temptation uh, to translate the mystical body concept into secular political terms or apply it to earthly institutions like the nation, um, because it reminds us that there's no secular analog for the body of Christ. So that's one way they develop their theology. I think the other way is uh, the emphasis that they place on eschatology from the 1940s onward, in contrast to the language of incarnation that was so dominant in the 1930s, because you know, many Catholics who had supported Vichy used the language of incarnation to justify that support and to say, well, Catholics need to work within these institutions in order to channel them in the right direction. And so we see a marked shift, I think, in their language towards an emphasis on eschatology and the fact that we can never confuse uh, secular political projects with the kingdom of God from about the 1940s onward. And so for me, like both these cases are really just evidence of, of the plasticity of theological concepts and the way that they can they can be used to serve a variety of different political ends. It's not as though one theology always leads to a particular political outcome. Great. Uh, so besides these 
theological and political discussions that you chart in your book, you also show that these new theologians were actually engaged with secular uh, strands of French philosophy. You discuss in great detail their engagement with thinkers of the left, showing how they contributed to the debates on Marxism and existentialism. And here, probably the case point is Gaston Fassard, who in the 1930s uh, was attending these famous seminars by, led by Alexander Kozhev on, on Hegel and, and on his phenomenology of spirit. And as well, Fassard studied uh, early Marx writings and uh, he continued his engagement with Kozhev and Hegel after the war. So it's like really, really fascinating uh, story. Uh, may you tell us why uh, these Catholic theologians find it necessary to engage with Marxism and existentialism? And how did these Catholic thinkers actually contribute to these seminal discussions of post-war France? And uh, more generally, what are the implications of this continuous interaction of Catholic theology with uh, secular thought for our understanding of the history of 20th century French thought? Yeah, so, so here I think it's important to, to point out that, that the main intellectual families of, of post-war France were uh, Marxism, existentialism, and Catholicism. And um, in 1945, they're locked in this struggle um, to claim the legacy of the mantle of humanism. Um, and I think it's important not to see Catholics as one separate block within uh, these debates, but also as something that's internally divided. Uh, with some Catholics being more drawn to existentialism and some more interested in engaging with Marxism and the possibility of, of potential collaboration in some ways with communists. So um, I also wanna stress though that, that Catholics weren't just influenced by these debates and developments in secular intellectual life, but that they also played a key role within them. Um, and their work was widely read by secular philosophers at the time. And so, you know, the example you point to of, of Kojev's close relationship to Fissard is a really good one. Um, you know, at the, I say that at the end of Kojev's famous uh, lectures on Hegel, he selected two people to stand up and give a formal response. And one of them was, was Fissard, the other was, was Aron. Um, there's also the debates between Danielou, Cardinal uh, Jean Danielou and uh, Merleau-Ponty and uh, the debate between Danielou and, and Georges Bataille on, on sin, which was attended by many prominent uh, philosophers at the time. And so for, for Catholics like Fissal and Danielou, it was really crucial for the church to be able to engage with modern thought on its own terms um, in order to show that it had something to contribute to modern intellectual life, rather than simply retreating into a kind of intellectual ghetto which was what they thought the church had done, for instance, um, with the modernist crisis at the turn of the century. And in terms of intellectual history more, more broadly, um, I think the problem is that when, when historians of 20th century French or, or European thought tell the history of intellectual life in this period, they often either leave out Catholics or underestimate the impact they had on these wider debates. And in doing so, I think, I think we miss something about actually what's going on in these debates themselves, and, and especially the central role of religi religious questions, 
which were crucial, I think, to both uh, French Hegelianism and existentialism. So part of what I want to show is that the Catholics were actually instrumental to the development of some of these philosophies, right? Hegelianism, existentialism, the philosophy of history, totalitarianism theory, human rights theory, etc. And I think we still see this today uh, with, uh, for example, the recent engagement with St. Paul on the part of continental philosophers, or the debate between uh, Jürgen Habermas and uh, Joseph Ratzinger in 2004, we continue to see that that um, Catholic thought and theology in particular remains in close dialogue with secular philosophy. So I'm trying to show in some ways um, the roots of that or, or the fact that it's it's always been the case. So throughout the first half of the 20th century, what is very evident is that the popes were constantly drawing red lines on what what was acceptable for Catholics in terms of their political stances and intellectual preferences. And uh, this is most clearly, uh, we see this with uh, papal condemnations of French Catholic intellectuals and their movements. And you touch, touch this in your book, like so there was this modernist crisis at the turn of the century, when there was this condemnation of Marx and Niers Sion in 1910, when there was, of course, Charles Morat and Action Francais, and of course, there was, after the war, we see Henri de Lubac and Novel Theologie, uh, which was also condemned, and uh, however, this latter one provides quite interesting case for, it was later rehabilitated and also helped to shape the Second Vatican Council in the 60s. So all these different cases, I think, points to this very, very interesting dynamics of the Vatican and the Catholic thinkers who actually advance Catholic thought in different uh, directions. So could you tell us why Noel theology was condemned by the Pius Twelve and what influence did these theologians have on the Second Vatican? And perhaps why it did not uh, grow into some larger movement during the second half of the 20th century, as one would expect with this influence on the Second Vatican, that maybe it would uh, become some major uh, theological movement, but actually it did not. So maybe you can tell us more about that as well. Yeah, so uh, the the key moment I think for the for the condemnation is the uh, encyclical Humani Generis in 1950, um, which was the culmination of a kind of slightly longer campaign against the Nouvelle Theologie uh, within France, and that was led by powerful Roman theologians like uh, Reginald Garrigou Lacanche, who many people think was probably the person who wrote that encyclical. Um, and the main objection has to do with the role of history in theology, um, the notion that theology is subject to the forces of history, that it changes over time, and their embrace of kind of historicist philosophies. Um, but it's also about, I think, the status of Thomism in Catholic thought, uh, since the encyclical uh, suggests that these uh, theologians are guilty of undermining the centrality of Thomas Aquinas by either trying to return to the church fathers or, or getting a little too close to modern philosophy. Um, and in this vein, they're also accused of making too many concessions to modern thought, and especially to things like existentialism and Hegelianism. So um, 
those are the sort of the main objections, but I think it's really important to distinguish the condemnation of the Jesuits, which you is really um, instantiated in, in this encyclical from that of the Dominicans, which happens a few years later in the mid fifties and has much more to do with politics and with the crisis over the worker priests in France. So they're slightly different moments. Um, but despite uh, these condemnations, uh, unexpectedly, both wings of the Nouvelle Théologie had a major impact on Vatican II. Um, and again, this was not at all expected at the time, largely because the documents, the draft documents for the council were still very much in the, in the vein of this older theological model. Um, but then what happened at the first session of the council in, in 1962 was that there was a kind of revolt where a number of the cardinals and bishops rejected the draft documents and uh, they were sent back to be rewritten. And the theologians associated with the Nouvelle Théologie or people who were influenced by them uh, played a really important role in rewriting these documents. Uh, so as a result, the Nouvelle Théologie uh, influenced in, in important respects council teaching on, on the church, on ecumenism, on the church in the modern world, and it brought an emphasis on into, into the documents as well. But I think we also see reflected in the documents a, you know, the split that I mentioned between the Dominicans and the Jesuits, which really comes out more forcefully in the discussions around Gaudium et Spes, the constitution on the church in the modern world. Um, and I, this is where you see the beginning of a split between what are sometimes called the progressive or conservative uh, groups, uh, which really develops even more fully after the council in the split between the two journals, uh, Concilium and Communio, with the Dominicans being on the more progressive side of things, having a more optimistic view of, of the modern world, and the Jesuits being a little more critical and aligning with people like uh, Joseph Ratzinger, um, Hans Horst von Balthasar, for example. And so I would push back a little bit on, on the idea that they their influence declined somewhat after Vatican II. I do think, you know, as I mentioned, the divisions between them set up a lot of these post-conciliar debates. And I try to show in the epilogue as well how uh, they impacted the development of liberation theology, for example, um, as well as more recent movements like radical orthodoxy and uh, their influence on popes from John Paul II to uh, Benedict XVI to Francis. Um, so I don't think their, their work has had less appeal since Vatican II, um, even if some of these later generations of theologians have pushed back on some aspects of their theology or have, have transformed their thinking in ways that they probably wouldn't recognize. I think it's become just kind of embedded in, in the mainstream of, of Catholic theology since then. So one thing that you frequently assert in, in your book is that these new theologians escaped the secular political categories. So, for example, the distinction between left and right or the labels of conservative and progressive, that these categories have only limited value when applied to theology and uh, which was consciously conceived in opposition to secular politics. So you argue that their theological political thinking was primary a moral and spiritual project that has to be understood on its own terms and this is I really think is really appealing uh, approach to, to 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 their thought but at the same time I think it uh, it poses some like interesting 
questions of, for example, of how to integrate theology into wider history of political thought, uh, if, if you cannot really square theology into secular categories. Or another problem is like this contextualization problem, I guess, that how you contextualize modern thinker who actually continuously refers not to his contemporaries, but actually to like these, these thinkers like uh, church fathers or Thomas Aquinas from like centuries ago. And so was, I would be really interested to, to, to hear your reflections about the issue. Like what are the lessons that you learned while you were writing this history of new theology and how should we integrate theology in intellectual history and the history of political thought? Yeah, no, this is a really important question. And, and certainly as I was writing, I frequently came up against, um, especially just the problem of vocabulary and uh, the, the lack of vocabulary that we have for speaking about people whose ideas don't really translate in the categories we usually use to make sense of, of political thought, like, you know, liberal and conservative, or they, you know, claim that they're not actually doing politics. Um, so this was a problem I constantly ran up against. And so, the, you know, a term like counterpolitics is sort of designed to address this, um, maybe imperfectly, uh, to try to balance what they thought they were doing with what I thought they, what I think they were doing, um, and trying to do justice to their efforts to critique secular politics without accepting straightforwardly their claim that they were actually above politics in some way. So I try to kind of hold open that space rather than simply collapsing it. Um, I do think we need a wider range of terms to describe political phenomena than those that derive from secular political thought like, like liberal conservative or right and left. And we also need a more expansive uh, definition of the political that, that takes seriously forms of political intervention that don't take the state as their primary frame of reference. So, you know, I point out that politics also involves ideas more broadly about the nature of time, history, uh, the nature and ends of human life, the relationship between the individual and the community. Um, and these are also the questions that, that theology explores. And so that's why I think um, theology and politics always necessarily overlap in some, in some ways. Um, as to the question of contextualization, I think that's, that's really important. Um, I argue that we need new tools as intellectual historians to think about religious thought because these people are um, responding not just to the particular moment in which they're writing, but also to these longer traditions. So we need an approach to contextualization that is temporally intensive as well as extensive and that balances these two different uh, contexts. Um, and I just, I wanna reiterate again, I, you know, I think it's so important to try to integrate theology into intellectual history more broadly, especially in a modern context. Um, you know, medieval theologians, early or medieval intellectual historians and early modern intellectual historians do this very well. They're very used to this, but I think uh, we're less accustomed to doing this in, in a modern context. But I do wanna point out that there has been a lot of really great work in recent years that uh, is beginning to do justice to the role of religious thought, you know, to people like Maritain or Mounier but I think we need more work specifically on, on theology since it does tend to get siloed as something separate from, from mainstream intellectual life or political thought. 
So thank you, Professor Shartal, for your agreeing to speak uh, with us and for your wonderful book. Thank you so much for having me. So this was Sarah Shartal. Uh, we talked about her new book, Soldiers of God in the Secular World, The Politics of Catholic Theology in 20th Century France. Thank you everyone for listening and let's meet uh, again in the future.